0: My employers bullied me and made sexist and racist comments to me and other members of staff from the same mixed background as myself. They commented on my religion and would say I'm going to hell because I don't believe what they believe. They failed my probation with no valid reason.
1: Hello again, it's Monia Adam here, reaching out as always to all you busy frontline clinical staff working in primary care. But this episode. And the next one, in fact, is of importance to everyone working in primary care. And some might even say to anyone working in the NHS. It's also a special episode, and it's special for two reasons. The first reason is, it's about the extremely important topic of racial discrimination towards staff. So that's what the episode's about. Now, that's not to say that anything we've covered in other episodes is any less important. But racial discrimination, inequity, you know, that sort of thing, isn't the kind of topic you can always freely discuss, right? And I think it's really positive that such discussions are now being encouraged at various levels in the NHS. And for example, on this podcast, I can freely discuss this without worrying uh, about any repercussions, for example. And I ask you, was it always that easy to do that? Is it even easier to do it now in some places? And if you think not, which of course would be really sad if you are working in such a place, well, that's all the more reason to stay tuned. The other thing that makes this podcast special is that in addition to the passionate and highly dedicated team that's going to walk us through their insights and experiences and who'll introduce themselves later, we're also very lucky to have contribution and advice from Dr. Navina Evans, the CEO of Health Education England. Dr. Evans will be sharing her reflections and insights into the national challenge of racial discrimination and such related things, and where we are in that journey, how to go about addressing this sensitive issue in the right way, and how HEE as an organisation has been responding to it as well. And the reason I say right way is, as we'll find out, it's actually really easy, even with the right intentions, to respond in a way that's counterproductive. After that, Our focus is going to be around the recently published first ever London-wide race equality survey of the primary care workforce. And we believe that this is going to be relevant to you, not only if you work in London, but no matter where you work in the country. And I'm sure that as you listen to it, you'll find that a lot of the messages that are coming through, they really do resonate with you no matter where you are in the UK. We'll be listening to the journey taken by this dedicated team to engage far and wide And the actual, and I have to say, somewhat shocking findings of the survey. And i got to say, in all honesty, when I went about planning the episode, I wasn't sure I'd get commitment from even one person to talk about this. But that wasn't the case at all. And actually, the whole team has been passionate about this and had so much to say that I've split it into two episodes. So yeah, in this episode, we're going to talk about the journey that they took and the findings. And then in the next episode, we'll talk about the strategy and what each of us should be doing about the problem. Yeah, each of us, every single one of us should be involved or at least aware of the problem and perhaps about what our role is. But for now, let's start with, and regular listeners will know that I often start with a naive sounding question. And the question is, is there even a problem? Welcome to Primary Care UK. You heard a quote at the start of the episode, and that was read out by Noreen from the London team. And some of you may have found that quite a disturbing thing to have to hear. But these are the actual words of somebody suffering with discrimination. You know what? It's possible that you're the one uh, who provided that quote. And if you are, I bet you'll agree that it's not always very easy to be able to say these things in all settings. And I bet that you found it really tough and desperately needed support. And many other listeners as well will be able to relate to those feelings. She's so you're not alone. And this includes Dr. Evans. So let's join her now. Okay, welcome, Naveena. Um Most listeners will already know who you are and your role as the Chief Executive Officer for Health Education England. And I'm really grateful to you for joining us because the thing is, having a CEO does help to emphasize the importance of the topic in question. And, you know, it clearly is an important topic. But I'm even more grateful because I know that the issue of race, inequity and related things means a lot more to you personally as well, and that you've been quite involved in various ways. And I've been lucky enough to hear a couple of things that you've done as well in relation to this. So it means a lot more to you. Why is that?
2: Thank you for the question. This topic is really important to me on a number of levels. Uh, And I'm going to start with the, the sort of mega, if you like, level, which is about what the NHS means to me. So I am uh, an immigrant and I am a woman of color. I come from another a country in the Commonwealth where, when I was growing up, the NHS was like something amazing that, you know, we didn't have something like that in our country. Free at the point of delivery, fair to everybody to access uh, and really high quality. And uh, uh, the education that you get in, when you're training, it's amazing. So it was something really amazing, and then I come along and I get to join this tribe, which is which is just unbelievable. I can pinch myself. And then I work, you know, I've worked for over thirty years in the NHS, and not only have I had a really rich work life, I also then have had the opportunity to become a leader and shape how things happen in the NHS. So it means an awful lot to me. So for that reason. It, it pains me when I see that, that things are not right. There's huge impacts on just patient care and the population's care, on how people are treated. There's something about fairness. There's something about morality. There's something about the ethics of it. But mm. we're really struggling. I'm also a taxpayer. You're a taxpayer. Mm. You know, we must get really good value for money. And inequity is wasteful. Not only is it wrong, it is wasteful.
1: Mm. And it's great to hear when you mentioned the positivities of the NHS as well, which I often try to drive that message across. Yeah. It's great to hear that from you as well, and also that where well, there's always opportunities to improve. So that's the bigger picture, really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, um, And I think that when people listen to you, they, they're going to feel inspired uh, because yeah. if they're not native uh, English, but well, they might also think, well look, she's been able to reach and get to a position of success and leadership, and therefore it is possible. But was it always a very easy journey for you or have you experienced difficulties yourself?
2: So I, I have absolutely, I have experienced difficulties. I mean, I, we could spend the whole time me telling you story after story after story as far well, as long as I can remember, really, you know, at work, in education, sometimes patients, sometimes in the public, you know, and so the stories will be, uh, the, the, the same as, as many other people will have experienced. For me, uh, I, I think what I want to share though is that, they're really hurtful, and they're really painful. And I often would feel really ashamed, you know, when those sorts of things happened to me. Um, And you feel like you've done something, and you need to do, you need to change yourself to be able to fit in. Uh, You know, I went through all of those things. And I think I did uh, all of those, all of those things. But I think I, I also began to learn that I could look for for friends and for allies, and that was really really great. I can name people who I know were great supporters. Sometimes they didn't really understand or know that that was, that's what they were doing, but that was really really important. So I hope that in this um, podcast I will have the opportunity to be a to make a shout out to allies actually to step up and be a support, be much more intentional uh, in their support.
1: Mm. I guess it's both concerning when one hears uh, that the struggles that you had, and, and yes, that they can be quite deeply hurtful, and but also encouraging that you managed to uh, respond and had the right support from some people and was able to make progress. I wish I could believe that this is something where you're maybe an exception to the rule or maybe an isolated case, but that's clearly not the case, is it? It's quite a common. Pro- How much of a problem is it?
2: Yeah, so I think, I think it's, it is much more common than we think. I think that people are more willing to speak up. I think that uh, our white colleagues and uh, colleagues with more power uh, are much more aware and that's a good thing. Um, I think social media has given people more of a platform and a voice and it's more mm-hmm. instant. So we are much more aware of a race inequity uh, and also when incidents happen. So, that's, that sort of putting it out there and feeling uncomfortable is all part of a process that we have to go through, but it shouldn't stop there. We really need to collectively think about what we do uh, to make things different.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the things that surprised me uh, a little was when I heard that there wasn't a lot of data certainly relating to primary care that one could share to try and put numbers to this. Yeah. Can you think of any, any figures, if, even if it's not primary care, have you, have you come across that or has any work yeah. like that been done?
2: So, I mean, look, we have had for some years now, the race equality standard in the NHS, yeah, where uh, trusts collect data. And um, I used to work in an organization where, you know, we, we took it very seriously. Uh, we looked at the data, we, we would work on action plans. And what's interesting is when the action plans were top down, they didn't work so well. <laughs> um, and when they were co-created with the staff and staff networks, they had better chance of working. So that was a, a one really important lesson. Uh, the other lesson for me is that for an organization, it's it's important that the data isn't used to beat them up because then what you do is you chase the data and you don't really look at how you want to change things properly. Uh, so there's a, there's a real subtle, what do you do with data and how do you consistently work with it? Then the third thing for me is um, it is okay as an organization to try something. It doesn't work. To be really open and say we failed, so let's let's sit down and have another think and do something different, uh, mm-hmm. you know. And the most important thing for me is that we should invite people who have experienced it to help to co-create the solutions. Uh, mm-hmm. That for me was the single thing that made a real difference in shifting on, you know, small steps uh, to make a real difference.
1: You know what, in literally less than two minutes, you've just listed lots of really important principles to work by Mm. if one wants to actually do something about this. Mm. Perhaps tell me a little bit more about what has HEE been doing, Health Education England, um, to try and tackle this?
2: Yeah, so a number of things. So, of course, uh, people will know Health Education England, you know, our business is uh, education training, workforce planning, uh, the well-being of our students and trainees. So so if we think about our um, strategy, if you like, our work is our people. That's the people we employ in HEE and our faculty. Then there's the business, which is of education training. And, you know, we contract out to trusts and to universities to look after our students and our trainees. So our job is to make sure that the quality is right, that that, that is working well. And then the third area we look at is our influence on policy. Um, and uh, and that's really that's those are three areas. So we we agree. We decided we can't go around telling people what to do if we don't get our own house in order. So we have to look our own internally at HEE and have a take a cold hard look and feel uncomfortable that actually we're not great ourselves. What inequity is there within HEE? So we have had a plan to try and address what inequity we know goes on even within our organization. Then there's also, of course, through the quality framework, and there's lots of steps that our um, postgraduate deans and our nurse educators uh, that we're building into the work that we do with universities and with trusts to try and improve and make people more aware of inequity that is happening. And then the third area when I talk about influence, I'll just give you one example, which is the work that we're doing with all of the colleges, the rural colleges, if we're if we're talking about doctors here. So for example, one thing is we know about differential attainment. Now, it's a real thing, it's a real issue. So we are working with all the colleges. What are you doing to reduce differential attainment uh, with the GMC? uh you know what we work with them what are we doing to address the fact that a higher proportion of doctors who are referred to the GMC are uh from minority ethnic communities and we do some really we we have to work in collaboration the first thing is to 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 first of all stand up and be open about there is an issue no need to make excuses there is an issue we want to deal with it um and that's quite hard
1: to do There's the challenge of dealing with others who may have not been confronted with this in the past, and even harder to look at one's own self. I mean, as an organization, I mean, when you know that you might see something you don't necessarily want to, Mm -hmm. and then to actually take a step and say, well, let's take this head on, um, is admirable. And you mentioned, yes, a lot of this has been about doctors. But of course, the worry is that the same information might come through when we start looking at other professions in primary care as well. Um, unless the system is changed, it's going to affect everybody. Well, uh, listen, that's really amazing to hear. And we're going to be hearing a little bit more specific about one particular region that's been working on this, which again, I know you've been quite involved with as well, which is the London area. And of course, things have been taking place in other areas. And I think that when the leadership wants to do something about it, then people in different areas are going to step up and move forward in the positive direction. That's great. Thank you very much. We're now going to home into the situation in London. However, this is most definitely not a London-only problem. We're aware that some other regions have also undertaken similar initiatives, which is great, and that the issue is of nationwide relevance. London is but one example, and an important one at that. And I have no doubt that many across the UK will be able to relate to the messages that are being conveyed. And I also want to say that when nobody's done anything like this before, it can take quite a lot of planning and organizing and reaching out to do what this team has done. And so I make no apologies for spending a few minutes actually listening to the journey that they took before we actually come to the result. And I'm sure you'll find it interesting to hear that journey as well. So let's join them now. Okay, welcome, everybody. It'd be great if you could start by introducing yourselves, maybe starting with... Carry on.
3: Hi everyone, I'm Carian Green, I'm the Project Officer for the Primary Care School,
4: HE London.
5: Hi, my name is Sarah Swinfin, I am the Programme Manager of the Primary Care School, HE London.
4: Hello, I'm Jonathan Sampson, I work for NHS I, the London Regional Team, uh, as a Senior Programme Manager for Workforce.
0: Hi, my name is Noreen Batty, I'm a GP by background and I'm the Strategic Lead for HE uh, London Primary Care School for Workforce Race Equality.
1: Okay, so uh, great to have you all on board. Now, London is uh, ethnically obviously very diverse. Uh, There's a lot of diversity in the workforce, in the NHS for sure, and certainly in primary care. Medical students, GPs, PAs, certainly those I've come across in East London, for example. So um, if it's so diverse already, I guess the question that's coming in my mind is, what's not okay about the system?
0: Okay. Thank you, Munir. I'll kick off with answering that. Um, You're absolutely right. The NHS overall is incredibly diverse. About 20 percent of those who work in the um, in the NHS come from ethnic minorities, uh, compared to about 13 percent in the country. But in London, we have probably the most diverse workforce of anywhere in the NHS, with 40 to 50 percent of our workforce from ethnic minorities. And despite that, we know that ethnic minority staff continue to have a worse experience of their working life than their white counterparts overall. We know that from five years of res data collection. We know that from survey after survey, admittedly mostly done amongst doctors, but we've had uh, work from BAPIO. We've had the BMA survey that was highlighted yesterday. That includes general practice. So we have a lot of data. What we didn't have was we we didn't have so much data in primary care, but we had a NEL pilot done in primary care a couple of years ago. We had a RES pilot done in Lewisham. So we know that the picture in primary care is no different from the rest of the NHS and that our colleagues from minorities um, are at a significant disadvantage in there experience of the workplace and in career progression.
1: You mentioned RES. I've heard of that in in a document, I think.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yes, thank you. RES is the Workforce Race Equality Standard. It's a staff survey that's been running for over five years. In the main, it has excluded primary care staff. It's run in trusts, both secondary care and mental health trusts, as well as arm's length bodies, and looks at the experience of the workforce um, related to various key indicators that include things like um, uh, career progression likelihood of being shortlisted for other jobs numbers of people in different bands uh, at different levels of leadership in the nhs uh, likelihood of disciplinary uh, process etc many there are nine indicators
1: I guess this people are going to be listening and thinking, gosh, why wasn't primary care given importance right from the beginning, but also relief to hear that at last it now is. So that's great to hear that things are progressing positively. Um, okay, so if we accept that there is some disparity in um, the offers and the opportunities and the experiences, surely the same could be said for any of the other protected characteristics as well. What, why race?
0: Absolutely, Munir. you're you're absolutely right. And People from any of the group's protected characteristics can experience harassment and discrimination. Our survey showed that, uh, RES data has shown that. However, race and um, ethnicity come up repeatedly as the group that are the most discriminated against. What we mustn't forget, of course, as well, is the intersectionality of those groups, that people have more than one protected characteristic and often impacted quite adversely by. By having more than one protected characteristic as well. So you're absolutely right um, in any strategy to improve inclusion and quality, we have to think about all protected characteristics.
1: If you fall into more than one category, sometimes the disadvantages or, or the, the impact can multiply. Uh, okay, so given that there was a need to get some robust data, uh, how did you go about doing that?
0: So first of all, I'd say that actually I think a lot of things collided to really bring this to the forefront, particularly in London. First of all, there was the whole Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. There was a the disproportionate impact of COVID on our ethnic minorities. All of this led to London looking at the experience of its staff and how, even compared to other areas, our res data was not good. And London brought out at the end of 2020 a workforce race equality strategy. At the same time, our new primary care school for HEE in London was formed, and it was looking at its key priorities. And one of its key priorities is and had to be workforce race equality. So we reviewed the um, 15 key recommendations of the London workforce race equality uh, strategy and looked at what would be the most applicable for primary care if we could come up with a primary care strategy. Um, in doing that, we work very closely with key stakeholders and partners um, across the systems in, in primary care. We wanted this to be very much multi-professional and multidisciplinary, not just for general practice, but for our wider partners um, in primary care.
1: So, yeah, I certainly appreciate how you decided to give it importance. But actually, doing that in practice isn't always straightforward, is it? So just talk us through a bit more about how you went about it.
0: Um, Thank you, Munir. You're absolutely right. And one of the things that's really missing in primary care is the data. We know anecdotally that and why would our situation be any different from other colleagues in other parts of the NHS? But we didn't have the data. We knew from the two small pilots that I mentioned in London that staff from ethnic minorities were suffering from discrimination and harassment. We didn't know the scale of the problem. So part of our strategy was to collect that data.
1: OK, and at this point, I just want to take a break for a second and ask you listeners, if you had to go about doing this survey, how would you do it? Just think about it for a second. Nothing like this has been done before. In fact, something was done but didn't include primary care. So, you know, what does that tell you? And uh, let me ask you this as well. Have you ever found yourself deleting an email about a survey without even reading it? I know I certainly have. So getting people on board isn't really always that easy, is it? Especially if nothing like this has been done before. You're not really sure why it's being done, whether you trust the system. And you might think it's not going to make a difference anyway. So these are some of the challenges that they were up against, and it's just worth bearing these in mind. But let's carry on now. So, Sarah, I know you've been really quite involved in developing the strategy.
5: Um, Yes, thank you, Munir. So we started by establishing a Resin Primary Care um, working group for London. Um, And Noreen already mentioned, you know, sort of engaging, you know, key and relevant leaders in the system to be part of that group. And we we started off with actually a survey amongst the group so we could establish um, what people thought would be best in regard to the work streams that we first focus on for primary care in relation to res. So we wanted to make it as sort of a democratic process as possible and we wanted to make it, you know, uh, as collaborative as possible and, and a joint vision, you know, to sort of really engage those stakeholders from the beginning. So they would be very much part of the whole journey and really support this strategy and really make this strategy work.
1: And how was that, Sarah? Did you manage to get
5: engagement? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the stakeholders, you know, as part of this group, I mean, we had we have um, LMC, NHS E&I, uh, HEE. We have um, a whole matter of sort of clinical and non-clinical representation um, in the group, we have um, the NHSEI um, equality and inclusion team as part of that group, committees like optometry and dentistry and pharmacy. So, yeah, I mean, there was absolute engagement from the beginning, you know, without a doubt in that sense. And all were very, very keen and interested to be part of this process and to really begin to establish this strategy for primary care.
1: You know, that's so reassuring to hear, because I have to say, sometimes um, it's very easy to get apathetic about the whole process and negative about it and then not get engaged. Yeah. um, It sounds like people really do believe that one can make a difference and was with you from the start.
5: Yeah, I think that was absolutely the general consensus. I mean, I think there was always certain barriers and certain challenges and, you know, maybe possibly some doubt I mean I don't really want to say the word doubt but you know there is it does feel like a big mountain to climb but generally speaking no people absolutely on board you know more than willing you know passionate about making a difference and making you know working life better for you know our sort of black and ethnic minority colleagues in health.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay Uh, so you went about the strategy how long did all of that take before you had something that you could then act on?
5: Well it only took a few months to be honest I mean we started in March and we had a sort of a good first draft of the strategy established around June, July, mm. and we began to sort of act on that. And then that then now survey came about, which um, you know my colleagues will talk about in more detail um, in the autumn. Yeah, but then again informed the strategy. So it didn't take long at all actually to get up and running.
1: As long as the will was there, then everything becomes easier.
5: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Part
4: of the data was purely numerical evaluation of the numbers of incidents, the number of employees experiencing discrimination and harassment. Uh, but most powerfully, uh, we also invited participants to describe uh, some of the incidents that they'd actually experienced. And, and that uh, can make uh, quite uncomfortable reading for all of us, because it describes very describes very distressing situations and circumstances Uh, And I think that has uh, really enabled us to present not just the raw numbers, but some real human uh, voices behind those experiences as well. Hmm. One of the things that was
0: quite difficult is really how do you access people? You know, say a general practice, how do you go and ensure that not just the GPs, but uh, nurses, allied health professionals and indeed all our admin staff and our receptionists, how do you make sure that they are all surveyed?
1: Absolutely. This is the kind of topic where if every single person would have something to say about it. Hmm. But yeah, go on, carry on.
3: Yeah, I think um, the survey was, was really important for us to, you know, get all professional groups in primary care involved in the survey to make sure that we identify and address all the issues that are happening. Um, so it was an anonymous online survey. It was all for primary care, including the, like dentistry, optometry, pharmacy, and it was open for seven weeks. But it was advertised as well through all different meetings, newsletters, social media platforms. We went through every avenue we possibly could to kind of, kind of get the message out there. And it was all through like different meetings as well, different board groups and different organisations from HE, I, um, training hubs, EDI leads. So it was really important that we kind of got everyone on board to kind of share this. Um, And we also got it endorsed as well by Navina Evans, the Chief Executive of Mm HE and Area System Leads. We had some challenges within the survey and some limitations as well. I think one of the main challenges was linking with some of the professional groups, including dentistry, optometry and pharmacy. Um, So we actively tried to kind of find one of those contacts. Luckily enough, we had one contact for each professional group within the working group. So we use those avenues to kind of get the message out there. They supported with their dissemination of the survey. So we had some limitations around the time that we was doing the survey. Um, At the time, there was other surveys happening as well. So that's a big one. It was during COVID. um, And I think accessing primary care can be hard. Like it is a limitation in itself, I suppose.
1: Thank you for reminding us about the rest of primary care as well, because I have to say, being in primary care in general practice, I, you know, I tend to—that's what I see it as. But of course, optometry and dentistry and so on; these are all very much just as important. But with all of this hard work going on, I'm now eager to hear a bit about the exciting bit, although I'm also dreading it somewhat. What did it show?
4: So we had
1: a thousand, over a
4: thousand respondents to the survey, uh, which broadly calculated at about 3% of primary care workforce. Uh, 3% doesn't sound very much, but I think that a thousand was quite a significant uh, milestone as far as we were concerned. I think that really represented a lot of voices uh, across all professional groups. And also, I think we had data from general practice that showed that the respondents my age gender and ethnicity were very broadly representative of uh, the wider workforce the the broad results showed that half of our respondents said that they've experienced discrimination and harassment of some form or other half fifty percent yes well 49 percent but I think we'll oh that makes it a lot better. gosh that but you that's terrible yeah so and and 30 percent 30 percent of the total respondents said, Uh, that they'd experienced discrimination and harassment on grounds of their ethnicity or race from patients. Uh, And significantly also, one in five respondents said that they'd experienced discrimination and harassment on grounds of ethnicity or or race from colleagues. Uh, And these are uh, really troubling numbers. It it means that uh, day-to-day experience of so many of our colleagues of colour includes discrimination and harassment. Uh, two-thirds of the incidents uh, were described as subtle or underhand. I, I, th- I think the expression might be uh, microaggressions. Some, some of the anecdotal commentary from, from the respondents was that in, in some ways it's more difficult to respond to those subtle digs uh, because, because, because they are subtle, uh, perhaps uh, they're unintended, uh, perhaps they were intend- uh, intended in a sort of passive-aggressive kind of way. But it, it makes it more difficult to to deal with in some ways than uh, an outright uh, sort of attack on somebody.
1: I, I know. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, yeah, because if somebody is very overtly, say, racist or makes a very strong, obvious remark, it's mm. very easy to challenge that immediately. And most people would support that it was inappropriate a lot of these subtleties are, are very difficult to challenge because they're a matter of interpretation, aren't they? And one could challenge your interpretation of it and say, of course I didn't mean it that way. Why did you take it that way? Yes. And yet yeah. yeah, the effect and impact of that, you know, the discomfort experience may not be any less necessarily. I agree. I think
4: that's why people
1: uh, mentioned it. I think it's also
4: why uh, of all the people who've experienced discrimination and harassment, Only one third of them said they'd actually reported it. Uh, And only one in 10 of them uh, Mm. said that the matter had been dealt with in a way that they felt
1: was uh, satisfactory, if you like. One in 10. So 90% remain unsatisfied that this is not being addressed properly. Either unsatisfied or or just not reported. Because I think
4: the other statistic that came out was that 50% of our, our respondents said that they didn't know where to get help from if they experienced discrimination and harassment, uh, or uh, they perhaps felt that even if they did report it, nothing would happen. So, I think we're seeing a picture where the numbers of reported incidents are, are the tip of the iceberg, mm-hmm. really, and that there is a sense that people are holding back in their day to day lives uh, either because they're not sure where to turn. Or, or because even if they did uh, raise their concerns, they, they wouldn't feel confident that it would be dealt with.
0: This is really important, Muneer. You know, if we look at the results of the BMA survey yesterday, which was only surveying doctors, but this will apply to our whole workforce. 75% of those who experienced uh, discrimination had mental health problems, distress, anxiety, depression um, and Half of them are considered other options, considered leaving the NHS. This is a real recruitment and retention issue.
1: This is at a time when clearly we need to recruit and retain as much as we can to meet the needs of patients. And a lot of things are being done to try and address that. And yet here's an obvious one. (laughs) Uh, Thankfully, something is being done. The
4: statistic that Noreen mentioned around people considering alternative options that came out in our statistics as well. So 12% of our respondents said that they'd either left a job or were considering leaving their current job uh, because of their experiences.
5: I was just going to add as well, I know that Noreen mentioned about the sort of mental health issues that were also expressed in the survey, but there were, there were also a couple of mentions of suicide um, as well, which I think is quite important to highlight because actually it is such a such a sad thing to hear that someone feels like they get to that point where they feel that hopeless about it all
1: my goodness so these are people who actually said they would consider killing themselves
5: yeah because
1: of the racism that they're or or the discrimination that they're
5: yeah i think that's sort of ongoing low-level discrimination you know
1: yeah in a moment it would be really useful to hear some examples perhaps um anecdotes or stories from people who have experienced this but are there any other key points? Not that I'm not necessarily looking for any more. I mean this is quite enough to, you know, wipe a smile off one's face. But So Munir, I did um, review the paper earlier on today. there is a lot of data in there and I think mm-hmm. if if you feel it would be helpful to give uh, include a link to that in the description for people to re- resort to. Yes. It may not be um, the lightest of reading, but at least, but it's an important topic that we all yeah. need to know about. Uh, so I would encourage people to uh, follow those links. Okay, so what sorts of things did people actually say? One of our
4: receptionists was called the N-word by a patient, and I witnessed this patient assault other receptionists by throwing something at them and shouting. I was distressed by this incident, but more deeply distressed by what I perceived as a lack of leadership and action taken by my practice. The junior practice manager arranged removal of the patient. However, not a single partner spoke to myself or any of the receptionists involved.
5: I am regularly told by patients that there are too many Indians in the NHS. Other people don't have a job since your lot arrived and all opticians are packies now. Colleagues stand by and say nothing.
1: Disbelief.
3: As a minority group nurse and a woman, I have experienced discrimination and harassment throughout my career. I had moments when I had to call a colleague to chaperone while I was carrying out care, as I was scared of being with this patient on my own. These these experiences have definitely impacted me. It has reduced my confidence, my willingness to help others, and has made me question my career as a nurse. I'm now studying for a different career now.
1: You've just given me four examples of totally unacceptable situations. Please tell me they were the only four. You've just, you've just picked out four cases that clearly stood out, but everything else wasn't so bad.
0: Seeing that I was being treated differently compared to my colleagues made me feel as if my feelings and opinions were not worthy. Discrimination makes me feel worthless and sad that I have given so much,
4: uh, yet not been appreciated. Having senior persons who are all Caucasian in a position to make decisions relating to racist incidents or behaviour is not fair. There is a blatant lack of knowledge about what equates to racism and how it affects an individual. This consequently affects how the whole situation is resolved. Situations like this should be presented to a more ethnically diverse group, making it familiar.
1: I will not even try to summarise this episode, because, well, for one thing, Noreen beautifully summarised some take-home points for us. And secondly, each of you will have taken away something different from it. Perhaps you learned a few things. I certainly did. Perhaps you feel angry, or upset, or even guilty, dare I say. Let's face it, none of us are perfect, and this episode wasn't about blaming anyone, But about awareness raising. However, you've taken it, we hope that you'll re engage in our next episode where we'll be discussing the strategy, the goal framework, and what each of us should be doing. This is a really important topic. Do join us next time. But for now, that's all we have today. We hope that you're finding this podcast informative and educational and that it helps us develop as a primary care community. Do send us your feedback and suggestions and you can use the links in the podcast description and on social media. I hope that you keep well and keep safe. And let's end with a further quote from somebody who has been experiencing and suffering discrimination. Thank you for listening and do spread the word.
5: At GP practices, there is no transparency on how staff are treated and why they leave. The GP partners have ultimate control And as such, the culture becomes very tight knit. They will not address behaviours from individual partners, even when this is quite clearly discriminatory. We need independent help.
1: Primary Care UK was developed by Therapeutic Reflections Limited to inform, educate, support and unite the primary care workforce. Specifically, it is not for the general public or patients. All information and advice contained therein is time, location and context dependent and is general advice only. No guarantees are provided with respect to the accuracy of the content. The hosts, contributors and the organisations they represent do not accept liability for any actions, consequences or effects that result directly or indirectly from the content provided. Please refer to the episode description for more information. Thank you for listening.